Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 131 of the Chills of Will podcast. It is surreal to be looking across the Zoom screen at Alice, Alice Elliot Dark, a biography of her, author of the novels Fellowship Point and Think of England. Alice Elliot Dark also had the story In the Gloaming, which was chosen by John Updike for inclusion in the best American short stories of the century. That is the century, like 100 years. And it was made into <laughs> films by HBO and Trinity Playhouse. Her nonfiction reviews and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many anthologies. She is a recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and an associate professor at Rutgers Newark in the English department and the MFA program. Good morning, or maybe good afternoon for you there. How are you today? Good morning. I'm fine, thank you. Oh, man, such a pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast. Anything, I know the bio is pretty short for for the uh, storied career you have, but we'll fill in some of those gaps, I think. Okay. Um, I'd love to know about, about growing up, I guess, in Philly, right? Yes. Uh, can, I don't know. Can I call it Philly if I'm not from there? Yes, you can call it Philly. <laughs> I just love to know about your, you know, your relationship with, with words. I mean, was it, a, was it a house where books were all over the place? Were you reading you know, above your grade level? Uh, just kind of how language and, and reading worked into your childhood. I was very fortunate to, yes, I lived in a house with books and I lived with people who read. Um, <clears throat> I saw people reading, I saw my mother reading and I went to a very good school. I went through, I went to a girl's school K to 12 okay. and it was an excellent school and I had a very great education in mm -hmm. reading, critical thinking, literature, poetry, all of that. And I am so incredibly grateful for it now. We had the 50th, we had my 50th reunion last year and we did a Zoom with a lot of the class. It was, mm. it was a big class for the school, but it was only 70 people at the very end okay. of the time. And I think about 42 people came on the Zoom and over and over, people said that they were so grateful that they could write. Uh. Um, they had been taught to write. And as we encounter the world now, that's just not the case with most people. Uh. So I did learn to write. I did a lot of poetry. Um, I was on the school newspaper. Mm. So I wrote my muckraking journalist pieces <laughs> like we want to wear jeans we don't want a dress code That's there was right. a lot of a lot of that um and it was that era and yeah but when i went to college i stopped writing for the whole time mm. it just caught up with me i felt people like me did not become published writers mm. 
I, it's funny, even though the milieu I grew up in was very steeped in reading, it wasn't steeped in creativity. I see. So, you know, most people I knew, in fact, all people I knew only did things like writing or painting or photography as hobbies mm. and not professionally. So I counted myself out mm. and I didn't take any writing classes. I didn't take any English classes in college mm. at all. I, um, I did something else completely. Mm. And I remember one day I had a roommate who was pre-med and I was living in a house, it, I went to Penn and I was living in a house on Pine Street, a big house. And this woman walked in and she said, oh, I just came back from my writing class. And I said, your writing class? And she <laughs> said, yeah, I'm taking Philip Ross writing class. He Whoa. was there then. Hmm. And I was like, how did she ever have the nerve? Like I would have no, in no way hmm. in the world have had the nerve to apply to get into that class. Hmm. And it taught me a lesson like, well, maybe I don't have to count myself quite as far out of this as I, as I have. Sure. Wow. What, uh, what were you reading, you know, as a kid, who were the writers? What were the types of books that really thrilled you? I just plucked anything off the shelf hmm. in my grandparents' house and at the houses I lived in, um, with my mother and, pretty much anything. When I was very young, we had summer reading lists mm -hmm. and I really, it was usually a hundred books and I did the hundred books. Excuse and me, I tried, hundred books? Yeah. Oh and I tried to do more than the hundred books. Well, these were not, these were not long big okay. books. I mean, this was when I was pretty young. And then when I got to be around 10 or 11, I really started reading off the bookshelves at my mm. grandparents' house. And especially they had a shore house and they had like lots of Ian Fleming books and they had Reader's Digest mm. books and you could read like five books in one. And mm. um, a lot of James Michener, which I loved. I loved ah. James Michener. I found that I found his books to be so exciting and thrilling. Yeah. Leon Uris. You know, all of those big books of that era, my grandparents had the paperbacks, so I read them. And the one I particularly loved was called A Stone for Danny Fisher, which was by Erwin Shaw. Do you know this book? I don't. Okay, it was before Erwin Shaw became like a, you know, a bestseller kind of author. It was an autobiographical novel about becoming a prize fighter, oh. I think in the Bronx. And it was a really gripping story. And so that set me on, down the path of reading hmm. sort of uh, memoir biography kind of books. I see. And I loved Like a Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Uh -huh. And, you know, all of these, all the books of New York City, I really loved. Uh -huh. That was very romantic to me. So like that. Yeah. Did you, you, you talked about reading, you know, anything and everything on the shelves. I mean, so but also with your schooling that you said was maybe fairly staid. Did you, did you feel like restricted by like the canon or, or not restricted, but like, I need to read the canon, you know, or was that not a, a concern? It wasn't really discussed in those terms, but mm -hmm. it was definitely a, 
fairly classical presentation. Okay. For example, in seventh grade, we started reading Shakespeare. Mm. And I think by the end of 12th grade, we'd read most of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You know, we just went through the plays. Um, but it was also in, in the late 60s. So a lot of other books were coming in. Mm -hmm. And the teachers certainly were not discouraging any of that. You know, they, they wanted us to expose ourselves to the culture. Mm -hmm. And we didn't read like a Hunter Thompson or something. I can't remember that being assigned at school, but <laughs> the books were around and all these other books were around like, um, what was it called? The, the one, the breakdown of the bicameral mind. I can't remember the first mm. part of that. And, and then um, the R.D. Lang books the, mm. about schizophrenia and then the Zen books, the DT Suzuki books were coming in. And I, I read all of that in high school, the Tibetan book of the dead. Okay. All of that. The origin of consciousness and the breakdown. of Yes, the there mind. you go. Thank you. I love that book. <laughs> I loved it. It was very, you know, all of those ideas were big ideas and very mm. influential as a teenager. Yeah. That did. Um, you know, the idea of like the writer as the narrator, the writer as the speaker, especially like in poetry, you know, like separating the two. So I'm just so interested. Well, Phil Philadelphia is not really there aren't there isn't that much mention of Philadelphia in Fellowship Point as far as like descriptions like they're there. They live part of the year there. But, you know, there's not a lot of description as much as there's of Maine. So I just wonder Philly is so interesting to me. I know it's close to New York. Obviously, it has the, the American history behind it, Constitution and such. And then the Quakers as well. Did you grow up Quaker? Did you grow up knowing a lot of Quakers? Like what, what was Philadelphia like? I love Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I am going to write a big Philadelphia book. Okay. Um, that's two books down the road. <laughs> so I am going to give Philadelphia its due. Mm -hmm. uh, where I grew up on the main line outside of Philadelphia is an incredibly beautiful place. I did not know that when I was a child mm. I did not know how beautiful it is compared to other places it's sure. truly it's truly just a very beautiful piece of ground with mm. rolling hills and trees and lots of flowers it's just beautiful and um, the city itself I went into the city a lot when I was young and I loved it it was old brick houses and mm. no no tall buildings i think until either the late 60s or maybe early 70s no building was allowed to be taller than william penn on the top of city hall huh. so it was a fairly low city mm -hmm. and it still is there are big buildings now they broke that code but most of the neighborhoods are at three stories at most so you have a sense of not being hemmed in like you do in new york right <clears throat> you're not in the shadows all the time like you are in new york yeah it's still an open sunny feeling city and it is the quaker city it's called the quaker city mm -hmm. it was founded by william penn and and the quakers and there's a very strong influence of that hmm. it's not the only it's not the only influence in the city there are many many but it's still around and the school i went to 
had been a Quaker school. Mm. So we had Quaker practices still. Mm. We had quiet day, we had quiet hour, we had a lot of presenta presentations from Quaker groups, especially during the Vietnam War. Uh -huh. Quakers are pacifists. So we had a lot of presentation, pacifist kind of presentations and presentations about what war was doing to the Vietnamese people, which was really amazing. When I think of that now, schools would not do that now. Hmm. You know, they wouldn't have a group come in. Well, maybe some schools would, but we had a group come in, show us a movie of what napalm did to children's bodies. Wow. And it was horrifying. Sure. And uh, girls just ran out, you know, everyone was screaming and running out of the room. And mm -hmm. of course the parents came, came or called the headmistress. And she said, too bad, you know, this is the world we live in. Mm -hmm. These are privileged girls and they have to know. Yeah. because you know they have to do something about it there was a lot of teaching of service and you're lucky and that means you have to hmm. give back hmm. so it was so, it was such a direct transaction you're lucky so you owe uh -huh. wow what a what a parallel to that that infamous uh you know photo of the girl the vietnamese girl running yeah. away from the napalm and oh my gosh wow thank you for that as you got older, high school into college, I wonder who were the writers who really thrilled you and maybe even pushed you into the direction of writing your, on your own? I wrote poetry until I was 30. Mm. So I was reading every poet. I loved Percy Shelley. I loved the romantic poets. Mm -hmm. I loved Celia Plath. Um, I love Charles Bukowski. I know right. he's canceled now, but I, mm. <laughs> I did love him. Mm. And all the big American poets um, and Yeats and Gerald Manley Hopkins. And I liked more um, formal poetry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to learn the forms, and I did. Mm -hmm. And then I just branched off from there. And in my 20s, I just started writing my own poetry. Mm -hmm. But I was also reading, while well, in college, I was an Asian studies major. They didn't call it that then, but I'll call it that now. Mm -hmm. And so I read a lot of Japanese and Chinese literature. And that was a great thing to do because I learned very, um, very close observation that different forms exist all over the world and it wasn't just the way people write stories in the west there were different ways of writing stories mm. not completely dissimilar but emphasis on certain techniques mm. that were valued more in other cultures for example chinese really love coincidence if you can mm. have a good coincidence and i and i realized i really love that too and Dickens does it all the time. You know, people do it in, in the West, but it, it isn't really held up in the way it was in Chinese literature, mm. which I found fascinating. And I'm trying to think if any, if I was reading anyone else in my 20s. Well, I lived in England for a couple of years. Okay. So 
I started reading, I was reading a lot of British playwrights at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I started reading more English books, I think, that were contemporary, but nothing's really coming to mind. I read like Ronald Furbank and mm. um, not, he was not contemporary, but you know, some of the, some of the books that hadn't come my way when I was, when I was in college, I read when I was there. I was, I was taught by who I think at the time was the Gerald Manley Hopkins scholar at Santa Clara's Ron Hanson. Oh, really? If you're familiar with Ron Hanson. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, he, I was lucky enough to be taught some Hopkins by him who was actually wow. the, the scholar, That's in, amazing. you know, in residence type of thing. Was there one Eureka moment or Eureka moments where you realized like I can do this really well as a writer? People want to read it. I can, you know, maybe make a living off this. Well, I still haven't had that thought. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, well, when I did, I went to a program, a writing program in London. That's why I moved there. Okay. And when I show my poems to the class, they went over at, to a level that I didn't expect. Mm. The teacher thought they were great. The other students thought they were great. And I was surprised. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. But it gave me confidence. And then I was living there during the punk period. Mm. And I was going to hear music like every night. You could just go, you know, it was just cheap at any pub and you could see people who became famous hmm. like 10 minutes before they became famous. Mm -hmm. it was so easy to have a hit record in England it's so small mm -hmm. that you could just go and see the pretenders in a small pub one week and then the next week they'd all of a sudden be number one on the charts and that happened mm -hmm. a lot so I saw a lot of really interesting music and I got very influenced by the way English songwriters were writing lyrics which was much more narrative, I felt, than American song lyrics. And I started writing poetry in that vein. And that was really the beginning of the shift to writing prose. Hmm. Just writing longer poems, narrative poems, poems with stories in them. Mm -hmm. hmm. And um, I guess it was a little bit before I even went there that I decided I wanted to, I didn't think I'm good at this. I could make a living at it or I could publish it. I just thought I really love this and I gave it up during college and I miss it. So I'm going to go back. Mm. And it just kind of went forward from there. Hmm. I, I look, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to talk about, you know, in particular um, in the gloaming, the is, is the name of the short story collection, right? Mm -hmm. it's all, you know, I have right over my right shoulder here. And it's uh, the story, the title story was named, like we said, to the best of uh, American, best of the century. And then Fellowship Point, which comes out, help, remind me when it comes out. Next Tuesday, a week from Next today. Next Tuesday, which would be mm -hmm. July, what? 5th. July 5th. In the gloaming, you talked about spending time in England and gloaming is, I guess, a Scottish term. Exactly. Um, I love to know some of the seeds for that particular story. 
my grandfather was Scottish mm-hmm. and he always used that word. Hmm. And, you know, to me, it was a household word. I came up against some opposition to it when I when the New Yorker picked up the story uh, that no one knew the word. And uh, I said, that's what dictionaries are for. Well, yeah, I that's mean, the point. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not an uncommon word, but mm. it isn't, it isn't, I think it's a more known word now, but mm. it's it's you know, it is in another language, but I a few things came into it. I had a really close friend who died of AIDS in 1986. Mm-hmm. And it was not like the story. It was a much more ugly mm-hmm. and um, difficult passage to death. Um, but I was very exposed to a lot of people who had AIDS in that time because I was living in the city and it was just everything that had been great in the late 70s turned horrible Mm. and um, so that was still very much with me and I it still is very much with me I think about that time a lot and that was the he was the inspiration for the character of Laird Um, even though it was not like what happened to him. And then my grandfather died shortly after. So those I had those two deaths really weighing on me heavily. And then I had a baby. And I wrote the story when I was sitting on the futon of my baby. He didn't like the crib, so he got a futon. He got a futon when he was four months old. That's like, you know... We just decided, oh, he hates the crib. So he went onto a futon and I would just sit with him. And I wrote the story when I was sitting with him, but it really started as it was almost like a vision. Um, I just heard the first line, which was he wanted to talk again suddenly. And I knew what it meant. I, it meant, okay, it's time to deal with my friend's death which I hadn't really, it was like, okay, he, this is him saying to me, time to deal with this and go back and think about it. So those were the seeds. It was just the weight of grief that I hadn't really figured out what to do with Mm -hmm. having a young baby. And I was intensely anxious about him Mm-hmm. and his well-being he was fine but I just was a nervous mother when he was a baby so it was you know thinking about how would I be under those circumstances how would I behave not I shouldn't say how would I behave how would I want to behave mm-hmm. you know how would I how would I hope I would rise to an occasion like that mm-hmm. so the story was a lot thinking about that and thinking about so many women I knew and had seen gone through terrible things like the death of a child or Mm -hmm. difficult divorce or whatever and how brave people are so that was those were the the threads leading into the story well thank you for sharing the the personal stories there did 
I have in my notes here, you know, that opening line is so, is just so powerful. It's so concise. He wanted to talk again, comma, suddenly. And I'll, I always remember it, and I'll think of it even more now that the he is almost like your your friend from 1986. Wow. Yeah. In in the story in the evening, so so talking about in the the gloaming, the word itself is is that a direct analog for dusk, or how would you define? It's change of light. So okay. morning also, you could say the gloaming. People don't uh -huh. really, but it it is. Okay. It's change of light. It's twilight. Mm, twilight. Yeah. Um, in the in the story, in the evenings, Laird, uh, you know, who's said to be thirty three, he's dying. the The narrator, the 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 mother Janet, talks about how he reverts to the sweetness of childhood, and how when the gloaming around that time comes, he's he's all of a sudden talkative. That's the wanting to talk. Um, just one of those nights out of nowhere, he mentions the gloaming and she's like, Whoa, you know, do you even remember that? And it's this idea that he talks about maybe being around his mom so much now, he remembers all these things from childhood, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about he wants to quote unquote get to know her. Mm -hmm. There's this irony here, right? Of him, him dying in, in the midst of dying and like, you know what was how about you mom how about you mom yeah right what yeah. what what about the the mother son or, or mother child relationship brought out those kind of conversations in the story it just pretty much happened once i had the characters i think that's how i do my writing mm -hmm. i wait i wait until i have the character and then they just proceed okay and, you know, they take on a life of their own. And I'm really, it's not channeling or it's not anything like that, but I really do just step aside mm -hmm. and I don't push them. I just see what they do. And um, I, I, I don't really, I didn't have a model for that mother-son relationship. I, my baby was a son, so I was having it, but my son was a baby, sure. which is not the <laughs> same at all as a 33 year old man. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I can't even say that it, it was anything familiar to me. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to be, it was a fantasy, really. It was a fantasy. It just seemed two people groping to make a connection under very difficult circumstances. And that it's probably the more universal theme of it. And that always interests me. I always have been interested in making connections with people and it's hard. Yes. So, um, <laughs> yes. and this was under circumstances of, they really had some time um, in, in the short term, they had the time in the day, mm -hmm. but even so, it took some doing to try, to, you know, for people not to be shy to try and open up and so on, which I think is very difficult, even though everyone wants it. Mm -hmm. As an amateur writer, I'm always so interested in the idea, like you talk about, where it's just like self-perpetuating, like the characters are, you know, are their own beings. Like you kind of, like you said, you're not channeling, but something along those lines. Is that something you feel like you you can be taught or is that just something you learn as you write like how to let that proceed well i've been teaching writing for 20 years so i have some 
faith that parts can be taught. Mm-hmm. How characters occur to people and how writing happens is quite mysterious. And I think there are things about it that cannot be taught. Mm. I just was on a retreat with four other friends and we had a conversation. I asked everyone to say, how do you write like in a session? Mm. Do you hear it? Do you visualize? Do you do both? Do you do this? Do you do that? And I think people are quite different around how writing occurs to them. And that, as a teacher, I have to try to encourage students to figure out how it occurs to them more than try and tell them how it should occur to them, Mm -hmm. because it is personal and they have to evolve along their own natural. Mm -hmm. That said, at a certain point, I did teach myself to really visualize the scene. Yeah. because it made it just so much easier when I pictured mm-hmm. the characters doing everything rather than just hearing them doing everything. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of thing can be given as an exercise, you know, to actually picture it and just write down what you picture rather than trying to change it into a written scene, mm-hmm. you know, just try to capture what you see. That's a very good exercise because you notice details when you're picturing a scene that you don't necessarily comes out, come out in your natural writing. Mm. You know what I mean? It's different. Yeah. So the, the elephant in the room or the elephant not in the room in this story is Martin, the father. He's, he's not around. He's always in his study. He's always, you know, he's a workaholic, you know, while his son is, is dying. Um, the evenings are for talking with mother and daughter, mother and son, excuse me. And, and Martin is just not a part of that. Um, we'll come back to him in a minute, but mother and, da- and son have this intimacy. They have these jokes that they wouldn't make otherwise if it weren't the evening slash, if it wasn't such a, a time around when him, him being close to death, you know, he, he asked her like, what are some of your favorites? And she's like, favorite, what favorites, you know, just getting to know her. Like we said, um, I always remember the line having read it just just uh, again uh, yesterday but i mean i haven't read it probably in four or five years but i always remember the line that really was touching to me was about where they kind of talking about different subjects they get into sex and she basically is like was that side of life satisfying to you i don't even know how to explain it but just like such a i don't know touching i know it's very tender it's a very tender right right. moment and the, the fact that that she is now talking in past tense right yeah i mean obviously she's, she's talking about the past but the, you know the whole idea of like talking to someone who's dying about yeah in the past tense right did you mm-hmm. and then it kind of like okay and they kind of joke about it and it's a little, they're a little squeamish you know obviously and she breaks it down you know even more touching did you love and were you loved in return beautiful line and that's when she realizes this is straight from the from the story quote she realized laird was the love of her life right I, I love that line. Even though I wrote it, I have to say, it. I love, I love right? it. Mm-hmm. You should pat yourself on the back for sure. Um, you know, it's not all happiness in their, in their connections there. You know, rainy nights, for example, the gloaming is not the same. And the truth really sets into her like, you know, he's, this is not going to last much longer. He's not always going to be talkative. He's not always going to be with me. And she wants a villain. She wants someone to blame for this. Is... 
I don't think the first time I read it, which I might have been really, really young. Are we to understand right away that it's AIDS? I purposely did not put that in the story. Mm -hmm. I only used the word immunocompromised, right. or that he had a, a he was immunodeficient, or he had a, some something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Which anyone who knew knew. It's code. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. It was a code, but I didn't want to make it explicitly an AIDS story because I felt like it wasn't explicitly an AIDS story. Mm -hmm. It was a story about a relation, a developing relationship that was going to have a finite point, mm -hmm. an end point, a known end point, mm -hmm. which of course we all do, but we don't know it a lot of the time. Right. You know, this, this, they had the, the end point and I really wanted it to stay. I mean, this makes it sound like this was thought through but it, it wasn't really that thought through when I was writing it but I it was a choice not to say AIDS because I did want it to be a bigger story about a you know a life rather than death and yeah, yeah. not about a disease but about human you know human contact hmm. I think it I don't know if you did it. I've, I've, I've probably literally read one or two stories, but like I think of Chekhov in one of his stories, like it's, I think it's like Mr. X or Mr. Blank. And we talked a lot in the class, you know, about like, this is an every man. He could stand for every person, every man. And I think that works really well in your story too, where if it were AIDS, I think, especially in what 93, 94, when it was written, I think it would probably yeah. push people a certain way. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. what I felt. Uh -huh. In fact, it's interesting you say that because when I first wrote it, the mother didn't have a name. Mm. And then it, when, when it was going to be published in the New Yorker, they asked for a name. Mm. So I gave her a name. But I had that same notion that she's a mother. Mm. She doesn't have to be that particular of a mother to even have a name. Mm. Wow. As the story gets towards the end, there's one of Laird's friends somehow got the mistaken news that he'd, he'd passed and, you know, writes kind of like a like a eulogy or, a very, you know, a nice letter describing him as like the funniest, most vital. And she reads that and then she looks over and she sees him like at the direct opposite the juxtaposition where he's incredibly weak. He's you know fighting off flies and, you know, she she puts her her arm around his wrist later and there's you know there's nothing there. So I thought that juxtaposition was really well done for sure. Mm. It, you know, just the devastation of that era mm. of these beautiful young men, mm. one after the next. I mean, it was just so devastating. And of course, this is just a, this COVID period has been such a reminder mm. to those who were very on the front lines of, that of the same thing just mm. you know it looks different than aids did aids looked yeah. and it, it was a different population for the most part but yeah yeah the contrast of just horrifying mm -hmm. uh laird's sister is ann 
and she, you know, she comes over to visit and like, she's, she's human. Like a lot of us, you know, seems at times to be like kind of relieved to, to go. It's obviously incredibly hard to see him as he is, but there's, you know, they have their, their childhood relationship, you know, has evolved, but there's still those inside jokes and, and looks and glances as he continues to deteriorate. And again, you know, uh, Martin, the father is, is nowhere to be seen. He's, uh, kind of, they kind of have this winking idea of like, well, well, you know, it's his work and they, they're older now and they understand, well, he's, he doesn't want to see his son and, and all those kinds of things. I'm reaching for the book here. Um, without giving away the ending, because that <laughs> the last page and a half, the, the last line, the question, I, I, I'm such a fan of ending a story with a question. And the question that yeah. Martin asked to end the story is, is beautiful and sad and, and just so emotional. But you have this really long sentence that does not read like it. Uh, this would be the second to last sentence, quote, and I don't think this gives anything away. Quote, it was the same curious, this is, sorry, this is Martin's um, speaking. And the narration is, quote, it was the same curious, shy, deferential tone that had always made her feel as though all the frustrations and boredom and mistakes and rushes of feeling in her days as a mother did indeed add up to something of importance. And she decided that the next round of telephone calls could wait while she answered the question he asked and then dash. And then, and then the question follows that, I don't know, Hemingway asked her many writers that and, 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 which you do so skillfully there. And like I said, it's a long sentence, but it just it reads so smoothly. Congratulations on an incredible story. It made the um, John Updike selected it for the best of the century. And then it was made into a movie. What was that like to have? I mean, you look, Meryl Streep and Whoopi Goldberg. And I'm probably. It wasn't Meryl Streep, it was no. Glenn Close. Glenn Close, Glenn excuse Close. me. Excuse me. What was that like to see your creation on film with some, I mean, you know, legendary actors and actresses? It was really a fascinating experience. When I first read the script, I had some, I, I mean, I knew they were going to change it, mm -hmm. but I was a little taken aback by some of the changes. Mm. Uh, but then when I saw, I saw it, there was a big premiere for it, which was interesting. Um, and I had gone to the set a couple of times and mm -hmm. seen the stars and seen them working out the scenes they were all so brilliant mm. you know and just trying things different ways and the lines differently and so fun to watch you know it was separate from me to some degree because when people first started calling me a lot of different people called over a couple of year period mm -hmm. considering making it into a film and I just my response was why I mean, it's just two people sitting and talking, to, like, where's the movie? I don't, you know, I don't see a movie in that piece of writing, but okay. And <laughs> if you insist. If you insist. And um, the person who ended up making it was Christopher Reeve. And it was very oh, yeah. shortly after he had his accident where he oh, became wow. um, a quadriplegic. Mm. And I think he had had a very intense, he had a close relationship with his mother mm -hmm. and from what was told to me and a little bit was by him and a little bit was by other people that 
things happened between him and his mother after that accident that were really um, powerful to him. And it made him want to make a mother son story. So that was fascinating too, because everything about the filming had to be worked around the fact that he had lots of machines Mm. and he had to be in a different room from the filming because there was, there simply wasn't enough room for him Mm. to be in the room. So that was all very interesting. And they, everyone was so respectful towards the story and it was, you know, it was wonderful, but I certainly didn't expect it. And it wasn't something that I ever dreamt about. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of legendary, John Updike selected the story for the collection. I mean, of, of the century, what was that like? Did you get to talk with him? Did you yes. get to, you know, were there, were there premieres and parties and, and did you get a chance to talk to others who were included in the anthology? There was a big party for everyone who was included, who could mm-hmm. come. That was very fun. And he was there and he told me it was his favorite story in the whole book, which mm. he's a very charming person. And I would not be surprised if I was not the only person he <laughs> said that to, but it was charming. And, you know, I appreciated, I appreciated him mm-hmm. saying that. And it was very thrilling. I was really excited about that because it was a great collection with lots of other wonderful stories and mm-hmm. fun to meet people. I'm still in contact with a couple of people I met at that party. Nice. Publishers Weekly, for example, says, quote, Fellowship Point is an immersive, intimate, modern interpretation of a 19th century novel, a literary page turner that hits all the salient points of the long entwined lives of two female friends. Um, it is not a short book. It is an incredible read. I, you know, probably literally spoke out loud a few times, kind of wows and, and some, of the twi- <laughs> some of the twists and That's turns. so nice. Oh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm telling the <laughs> truth here. It's... Uh, Wow. I, what an accomplishment, what an accomplishment. And I just wonder maybe again, you can talk a little bit about the saga of the book itself. Some of the things I've read 2002 or so you had a similar, you had, it was called, um, had the title, you had a different title, of course, at the time Um, you were ready to publish it, but different things happened. I'd love to know a little bit about the saga of the book itself. Okay. That was a completely different book. It was a book called, Uh it was a book called the book group. And it happened to be the same moment that um, Karen Joy Fowler wrote her great book, um, the Jane Austen book club. And it was considered to be, you know, there was some worry that it was too similar to that. The subject matter or just the title? The, um, just the idea of writing about a book group. Okay. Of course, there have been hundreds of books about book groups ever since then. But yes, yes. at the time, it you know it seemed maybe there's not room for two. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I wrote a couple of other novels that are sitting in my basement in big plastic tubs. They just mm-hmm. didn't work. I couldn't figure them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to write... At a certain point, I decided I wanted to write 
a bigger book, mm-hmm. 19th century style. And that came off of, it really came off of watching a mini series called He Knew He Was Right by Anthony Trollope. Ah. Then I went and read the book. And then I started reading a little more Trollope. And then I went back and read some of the other, you know, Middlemarch and a couple of other um, books by her. And I've read um, Madame Bovary so many times (laughs) and Anna Karenina and those big books, which I really love and love to immerse in and love to just go into the world uh, of a completely, you know, a, a whole society like that. So I decided I wanted to try and do that. And actually that came a little after the first thing that came was the character of Virgil, who I wrote a lot about. Virgil. It all hit the cut, it all hit the cutting room floor, but there was ton, hundreds of not hundreds, or I think I had about 200 pages of him. I know yeah. I had I had so many different versions of this book. It really started in 2011. And I wrote Virgil and then I wrote a draft that was just Robert and Polly. Mm-hmm. Robert being the the he's a landscape designer, but also a caretaker at the property who gets arrested. And that whole draft of the book was him coming out of prison and living with Polly. Mm. So it was another kind of a two person Mm -hmm. book. And when I showed it to my agent, we talked about it and talked about, you know, maybe making it, maybe expanding it. So I didn't know exactly how I was going to do that. You know, long story short, it was a process of feeling my way around. Mm -hmm. Um, The big idea of it had to do with old women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they came in, I really wanted to write about them. And then, you know, there were a lot of other themes when when my really close friends read the book, they say, oh yeah, that's, that's you. Because <laughs> none of it was autobiographical. These are all made up characters, situations, nothing in the book ever happened. Hmm. But I think a lot of the little things, and I think that's true with a lot of authors, you know, they don't even think about, I don't even think about making her um, a vegetarian because I've been one for so long. It's just like, yeah, that's it. And things, little things like that. Hmm. I, I'm so interested in, I mean, not that you, like you talked about 2011, you kind of picked it up again. Um, so not that you've been writing it for 20 years, but like, so if, if it's been 20 years, you were what, like eight or eight or nine years old when you wrote, when you started writing it? That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, no, oh my. I, no, I didn't start this till 2011. You know, I was yeah. trying those other ones that didn't work. I see. But I just wonder about like the idea of like perspective, right? Like if something happened to me yesterday, I'm not get, I'm not going to be able to write it about it as fully, or you know maybe it'd be more emotional than rational, or you know. So I just wonder about like being that the book was kind of drawn out for many years. Like, are you in a different place? Like, do you see Polly and 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 uh, Agnes, the two probably main characters? Do you see them differently? It was really wonderful to take my time with the book, and once I showed it to my agent, and he sent it to my editor to have her give me time to go through a couple more drafts. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even get to the ending until probably 
two years ago. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when I turned the book in, I had a very different ending. Mm-hmm. And it is a matter of living inside of something for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's advantages to both ways of doing something, to writing something fairly quickly and capturing the zeitgeist and then stepping back and writing something that's more contemplative and is not attached to um, any historical moment. Mm. Even if it, even if it's about an historical moment does not exist within our historical context right. so that it's much more psychologically um, explored rather than tied to current events. I see. Do are the characters real to you? Um, I would say yes. I would say they feel very real to me, and it was hard to let go. Mm. There were aspects of the book that I would have liked to. I would have liked to explore more. Not in that book, but okay. well, I can just. To that point, I can say the book I'm writing now is a sequel to In the Gloaming. It's sort oh. of what happened to everybody because I never stopped writing about those characters. I just mm. kept writing about them. And I'm working on that now. And I don't know if that'll happen with Fellowship Point. I don't think so, unless I write a prequel. I do have like a uh, fantasy of writing Agnes and Polly on their European tour when they're 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would be really a fun and funny book to write, but mm-hmm. they, yeah, they fell to me. And there were a lot of things I cut from the book that were really real mm-hmm. to me, you know, and I have all that material. So I feel that that situation and the people were, very well explored i gave them their due that's something i always say to my students like give your characters their due like Mm -hmm. don't don't short shrift them because you're in a hurry or you don't like them or whatever right doesn't matter you know Mm -hmm. give them their full humanity before you step away and i felt like i did that with these characters um even though it's not all in the final book i think having done that to my satisfaction Mm -hmm gives a texture to the book of, you know, having some vertical depth to it that if I had just written the story, it wouldn't have the same texture. Mm. You said it was hard to let them go. Did, did you finish like before COVID? Did you write during COVID times? I was editing it during COVID. Okay. But okay. I pretty much finished it. Bef- I Yeah, I finished it before then. Has, has COVID been productive for you i hate you know to say it like that or kind of like the same it's a terrible thing about writers and i've talked about this with a lot of friends having to go inside and be alone it's the dream you know <laughs> it's what it's what we live our mm-hmm. you know years for like can we go to an art residency for a few weeks can we have a vacation where we're fairly solitary. So even the, you know, the thing that was so disruptive of that was just the devastation of seeing what was going on. And, you know, I was one of the lucky people that I was able to work online. Right. 
my university, we shifted online. I was just teaching online. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to put myself out in the world. A lot of my students lost parents and who were frontline workers in the beginning. And you know, that I, I can't say that it was an idyllic period of retreat because constant grief. Yes. Um, but I did find out that I am, as I always suspected, I am happy to be alone a lot of the time. Yeah. So double, you know, it was just very mixed and a lot of mixed feelings about all of that. But of course, a different type of quiet, a different type of aloneness. Yeah. yeah. The, the book is, you know, has a lot of, the book has a lot of like, I don't know, not books, but writing within writing, you know, diaries. Mm -hmm. Agnes, the main character is a writer. She's mm -hmm. a successful writer. There's, you know, there are some flashbacks. Um, I just, I thought the, the timing of like, I guess the main action of the book is around is 2002, 2003 ish. Yeah. 2001 it's, to 2003. Two, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would have, I'm 42 right now. So that was like, you know, end of my college. And I don't know, it's just a really interesting time that I can't believe it's been 20 years. I'm sure you'd say the same, I know, but it's not, you know, it's, I can remember it. Right. And it was mm -hmm. interesting time, of course, with, you know, with nine 11 was, was mentioned, was featured in the book and just newspapers were more, you know, were more important and people read the papers and just kind of a really nice snapshot of that time. Um, but I just wonder about like writing the book and finishing it. And it's an incredible accomplishment. The, the, the book is, is so good. Were you able to appreciate it based on the fact that you had so many different iterations of it? And do you know what I mean? Like, were you able to just, I'm sure you re you read through it so many times when it was done, done, were you able to be like, wow. Or was it kind of like, oh, I've seen it before. It was really neither of those. It was, this is a very quirky, weird book. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea. I, Honestly, I thought I had done what I wanted to do. I felt that I'm always interested in structure and balance. I guess coming from being a poet, I'm always interested in structure and balance and flow and all of that. And I felt that I had, at the end of the day, with the help of Mary Sue Rucci, my very good editor, that I had I created a nice piece of work mm -hmm. that had like the aesthetic elements that I admire like in a painting or in a piece of music I felt that I had done that but that didn't mean to me that other people would really like the book but they have really liked the book so at this point I've gotten a lot of feedback about the book and I do feel really good about it but it wasn't like that when I first finished it no I didn't think about it that way hmm. Agnes is arguably the main character. She's the first character featured. She's she's a, a popular or a well-known writer, like I said, a successful writer. She has writer's block. She's got two different series going on. One of them's under a pseudonym. She's ornery for sure. I mean, she's one of those that you, you know, take it with a grain of salt. She's not a mean, rude person, but she's got a quip for everything. She also has cancer. She comes from the Lee family that, you know, the, the, the lineage of the Quakers. Um, her great grandfather, I believe, started the trust at Foundation Point in Maine, which is like, you know, the vacation home, but more, more even more than that. Polly, I guess, is the Quaker in the sense of not making trouble, right? She's very much more of a pacifist with like 
individual um, relationships. She's best friends with Agnes. Her husband, um, her husband, I'll say it, her husband dies, but she learns a lot about herself after his death, which I thought was so interesting that she'd been so deferential to him in his life. And he's not a, he's not a terrible guy. He's not a monster, but he, he doesn't seem to realize what he has with her. He's, he's very closed off. There's, That's there's, so well put. That's uh-huh. exactly the way I felt. I, I felt like he's not a bad person. Right. He's not a bad man. He's just a little bit of an absent-minded professor. Uh huh. A little bit self-regarding, um, but not nothing. Nothing bad. Well, in, in reading uh, in the gloaming just today, after having read this, I'm thinking a little bit of like I just forgot his name, Martin, the husband. Again, not exactly the same, but always in the study, always closed off, you know, his kids don't know him very well. Um, you know, so then there's Robert, who I think you mentioned he's the caretaker. He's beloved. I guess, I mean, is he kind of like a surrogate son for Polly and Agnes? Would that fair to say? He really, like a nephew. Yeah, he definitely is. Mm-hmm. They grew up with him. You know, there's in the back, in the back story, which is told as a journal that looks right. like letters we see him when he's eight years old and Agnes was already an adult then. And she knew him, she knew him her whole life. And so did Polly. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're very attached to him and they don't think of him as anything, but a part of the whole situation at the point, they don't think of him as some, as a worker, as someone who works for them. Right. You know, it's not, that's not their relationship with him. It's hard to describe. I've, you know, I'm not from this level of people by any long stretch, but I've seen them. And, you know, these kind of relationships are very subtle. Mm. And um, the interdependence, it's, it's subtle. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to do it right, because I think it gets into some pretty murky, sticky areas. Mm. But I did want it to be more a filial French friendship mm-hmm. than, um, you know, sort of like a valued worker. I was talking about Agnes as being ornery. She, she gets, <laughs> those, uh, had me laughing. I mean, just like a, a bitterness or an anger or rancor. I don't know how to describe it. The letters between her and Maude. Maude is this young late twenties. She's uh, she works for the, you know, the publishing company and she wants to get more out of Agnes or different out of Agnes. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, for the most part, she's self-assured. She knows her stuff. She's pushing Agnes to do a memoir. Um, while at the same time, her mother, Heidi, is going through, you know, great depression. I mean, such that she's almost incommunicado, right? Um, yeah. You talked about, you know, class and these relationships and power dynamics. That's clearly a theme. Land that, you know, they have this trust this foundation point, um, I'm sorry, uh, fellowship, point. fellowship point, excuse me. That's okay. And it's just about what, you know, what it means to own something. And one of the lines about William Lee, who was the ancestor, quote, even good charitable William Lee was a pillager in his own pacifist Quaker way. <laughs> I wonder what you felt like you were trying to say with about land and ownership. It, you know, it's, I, it just is su- it's such a long-term mystification that I've had with how can we possibly really own land? Mm. How can there be a border between, Mm. you know, I'm looking out the window at the little yards, my yard, then the next yard, you know, just little yards, little yards along a busy street. And 
it's like, why? You know, why is there fence, offense, offense, offense? And it, it's a very childlike thought because that was my childlike response when I first found out that, mm. you know, our property ended one place, the next property. It, it, I just thought, what? That makes no sense. And I was always very attracted to um, Native American ideas about land, which were different. And that comes into this book. Definitely. I think I really wanted to write about this kind of very, you know, high-minded kind of people who have a sense of stewardship that's really responsible, but it's also blind. Mm. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, a lot of what we see now and, and trying to listen more to other voices and other people maybe than the people who own a lot of the hmm. lands of, in this country now in other countries too who think that you know I have that part at the end of the book where um, one of the people who a says to her well to says to Polly well you know don't think I'm so awful you you people developed this place too hmm. you know just like a long time ago but right. you know it's and I think that is very a very real thing that people who've had something for a long time think that they're the good people. Mm. You know, they're the ones who are the preser preservationists. And right. it's not it's not accurate. And I really wanted to write about that in the book. What is good stewardship? How many people, animals, um, science, everything is taken into account. Mm or because a lot of people just take it into their own hands as we're seeing in all aspects of life right now. And it's really not like that. It shouldn't be like that. Agnes um, has the series with Nan as the protagonist and, you know, she gets fan letters and she gets people writing dissertations because it's, you know, it's a long running <laughs> series. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the writers of a dissertation wrote quote, it's as if Agnes Lee had no awareness whatsoever that women might be considered lesser. She writes as if equality were a fact, unquote. So good. That, that describes Agnes, right? She's, she's a feminist, but even calling her that's not enough, right? She's Someone just, asked me about this recently, like, would you call her a feminist? And I said, yes, but that's sort of an outsider perspective on exactly. her. She's really an egalitarian. That's what she is. She, she sees animals and she sees people and she sees men and she sees women. It's, it's all a level playing field to her. And she feels that respect is, you know, just like the better part of manners and relationships with every living creature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, she's, I mean, for me, definitely a likable, lovable character. She's ordinary. And I mean, she says some pretty, you know, cr I don't know, crass is the word, but you know, rude things or whatever, but she just reminds she's me. Tough. So she's tough. <laughs> she's tough. She just reminds me of so many of I, a lot of teachers I can think of, but just like, like you said, it's an outsider's point of view to call her feminist. She's just like, why wouldn't it be this way? And, you know, she's always lived that way. Um, Polly. Yeah. I thought of her as, um, you know, I, one of the movies I saw when I was young was The Sound of Music. And mm -hmm. I always loved the Mother Superior in that yes. movie. The, and the way she, mm -hmm. yeah, Exactly. The mm -hmm. way she deals with Maria and her waywardness, I thought that's <laughs> Agnes is like a Mother Superior. That's what she is. <laughs> Polly, like I said, I mean, kind of 
coming into her own. I mean, she and Agnes, and they both had so much grief in their lives. Um, you know, Polly and losing her, her husband in the quote unquote present time, you know, she does have like an awakening and awareness of her worth, I guess. I don't want to cheapen it even. You know? Yeah, no, that's right. Right. And, you know, and aging is clearly a theme. Um, I got to think, you know, from what I've heard and what I've seen people talk about, you know, getting older, women getting older, they're, they feel like often they're not even looked at. They're not yeah. even a factor. Absolutely. Invisible. I wonder what you felt like you're saying about aging. I wanted to show, especially about older women, but of course it applies across the board, even to animals, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that life every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And people have a lot to contribute and people change and people grow and people are interested in their own lives. It doesn't change because they're old. Sure. It's the same. And I really did want to show that because I do think older women particularly are thought of as being, you know, extraneous. And we've seen in COVID that, yes. you know, debates about older people, like, should we even worry, you know, blah, blah, Sickening. blah. Sickening. I know it's really, it's really strange because what do people think it's going to happen to them mm -hmm. as time goes on? <laughs> you know, they're going to be there. And also it's just a huge resource wasted for wasted, you know, to think that the only viable people in our country are people who are wage earners, mm. which is pretty much the way it is. Children are not children are not invisible but they're not right they're not consulted about sure. you know what shall we do uh with our world they're not consulted and older people are not consulted because they're not contributing to the economy mm -hmm. and i really wanted to write against that there's so much beautiful nostalgia i mean they you know uh agnes and polly they've been friends for 75 80, you know 80 years 80 years right and just so much nostalgia of all the time spent there at Fellowship Point, the beauty, the play. Like I said, there's also a lot of pain and tragedy. There's there's unrequited love, um, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, like you said, like I mean, a, a full life. I mean, all the all the different stages and things of life. And then you know, friendship really. The again, I will not give it away. The the last letter is so emotional, so so wrecking, so beautiful, um, and just ideas of what what love is, you know, there's so many different love stories within the book. And, you know, as, as I let you go, I want to just, uh, again, huge congratulations. You're getting Thank great you. reviews. By the time this comes out, people who have listened to this, you've missed six days, get on it, buy this book. <laughs> uh, right. Thank it's, you it's so much, be, Pete. That's so <laughs> kind of you. Well, I mean it. And, um, I would love for you to, to brag a little bit or give some, some info about, you know, where should we buy it? What's the company that is through? Um, do you have any particular bookstores you know that you love? Well, I have a local bookstore, Watchung Booksellers, okay. in my town of Montclair, New Jersey. That's wonderful. Okay. And the publisher is Scribner Mary Sue Rucci Books. My editor, Mary Sue Rucci, mm -hmm. has got her own imprint this year, coming over from okay. Simon and Schuster into mm -hmm. Scribner. So that's the publisher, and it's sold everywhere. I mean, it's sold through all the channels, sure. Bookshop, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, mm -hmm. uh, all those wonderful um, independent bookseller channels. Mm -hmm. So it's it's going to be pretty easy to get your hands on. Yes. There's a good audio book 
one of my favorite oh. readers, Cassandra Campbell reads it. It's, I think it's 18 hours. So good uh -huh. car ride book. Yes. Um, <laughs> and there'll be an ebook also. Oh, so okay. it's, yeah. All right. Well, um, you know, in, in my little corner of the world, I'll be trumping it up for sure and sharing all the info and bookshop and where to buy it and all that. And, um, you know, for someone who's only, you know, 37, like yourself to have written, you know, <laughs> legendary stories and this book, which is such an epic and such a, an accomplishment. I just want to congratulate you. And again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Pete. This has been really, truly enjoyable. I appreciate, I appreciate that so much. It. What a pleasure it's been to speak today with Alice. Continue to good luck to her with her writing. And I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a five-star review. You can ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. You can follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Any social media info you'd like to give out? I have an Instagram, which is Alice Elliott Dark. I don't do Twitter. Good for you. Good. I for can't you. figure it out. <laughs> You're not missing much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often different art form. The intro song for the podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, with both songs being available through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 132 with Morgan Talty, a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation out of Maine, right? It's right there. Yeah. Right where he close grew up. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Penobscot? Penobscot. 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 Thank you. Mm -hmm. Morgan teaches courses in both English and Native American studies, and he is on the faculty at the Stone Coast MFA in creative writing. His highly anticipated short story collection, Night of the Living Res, is forthcoming from Tin House Books, July 5th. That episode will air on July 11th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Alice Elliott Dark, whose works like In the Gloaming and Fellowship Point give you chills at will. Mm -hmm.